Well, happy Easter. Man, you guys are ready to go. You're not, did you eat before or after? That's always the dilemma, you know, with the 12 o'clock crowd. And I think you guys have some energy that you got from somewhere. So thanks for encouraging me in that. So I've said happy Easter. There's one other happy I've got to tell you in terms of what day it is. Happy. Okay. Yeah, a few of you got that. Anybody had an April Fool's prank pulled on them yet? Uh, anybody thinking now of doing one on someone as a result? I've had a few on me over the years, and I've pulled a few. But uh, there's an article in CNN about the greatest April Fool's pranks of all time. Uh, this hoax website ranked them over history, and they came up with the number one April Fool's prank of all time. Would you be interested in what it is? 1957 is when it happened. The BBC in England as a investigative journalism show that started in 1953 and is actually still going. It's the longest running investigative journalism TV program ever. And you know, TV was a new medium at the time. In 1957, the BBC's news program Panorama, kind of like our 60 Minutes, did a very serious uh, explanation and report of a bumper harvest in northern Italy, in southern Switzerland, right there on the border. They had one of the most famous journalists of the day, one of the most famous journalistic voices of the day, do the narration. And it messed with people for a long time. Why don't you take a look? 1957. It isn't only in Britain that spring this year has taken everyone by surprise. Here, in the Ticino, on the borders of Switzerland and Italy, the slopes overlooking Lake Lugano have already burst into flower, at least a fortnight earlier than usual. But what, you may ask, has the early and welcome arrival of bees and blossom to do with food? Well, it's simply that the past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavor and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. <laughs> So you've always wondered where spaghetti came from? Now you know. Spaghetti trees in northern Italy. They were dealing with that for years. Kids, I, I saw a blog about this and a guy, an elderly gentleman said, yeah, I was in, in grade school uh, at the time and my teacher asked about, we were talking about pasta and I said, I know where spaghetti comes from. It grows on trees in northern Italy. And she said, what? And she said, I, he said, I saw it on the BBC. It's gotta be true. It's kind of like the internet these days. He goes on, by the way, to describe one, another reason for the bountiful harvest is the absence of the spaghetti weevil that was destroying the crops, as well as the uniform nature. So April Fool's pranks are a lot of fun. The last couple of weeks, though, I've heard in two different conversations, one kind of joking that some people talked to me about, but the other one, I wasn't part of the conversation. It was more sardonic and sarcastic at a table nearby at a restaurant, people talking about the irony of Easter Sunday being on April Fool's Day. 
And in the sardonic, sarcastic category, they were talking about how appropriate that there would be some kind of commemoration about Jesus' resurrection on a day that commemorates hoaxes. I went back and forth. I wasn't part of it, so I didn't pretend on my way by. I politely I smiled and asked a question that I thought they could think about for a while. But is this resurrection thing a hoax or is it real? Millions of believers over the years have gathered together to celebrate that it is real. And let me clarify what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the resurrection of Jesus' memory or his teaching or his ideas. We're celebrating the literal bodily historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is on that hinge that all of Christianity rises or falls. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ is not raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. You're, and later on in that same passage, he says, we have all men are to be pitied. We're wasting our time. But if he is, we're gathered here because we believe deeply that he is, and it's not a blind leap in the dark. Tons of people over the centuries have sought to disprove the resurrection and have ended up becoming, becoming followers of Christ. There are mounds of evidence that would stand up in a courtroom, and you can look. You, we've got some books in our bookstore. You can look online. Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, Case for the Resurrection, among many others, where they go through the, and, and examine the resurrection. There are three hinge points, three key categories of evidence. One, that the tomb was empty. Why was it empty? Had the disciples gotten the wrong tomb address or had they stolen the body? If they had, they wouldn't have given their lies for the fact that Jesus rose. Did the religious leaders steal the body? Well, if they had, all they had to do is produce the body when this Christianity was spreading. Uh, did grave robbers rob the body? The, all of these different aspects that have been explored. The second category is the appearances of Jesus, that he did not just appear to one or two people. He appeared to many people in a variety of circumstances. One time to over 500 eyewitnesses at one time, and when that record was written down and distributed in the region, many of those people were still living. They could have disproved it. The third category, it's not just the tomb was empty and Jesus was visible, but the followers were transformed. People, skeptics became passionate uh, representatives of Christ. Cowards became courageous. People will give their lives for what they think is true, even though it's a lie, but people won't give their lives for what they know to be a lie. And so over the years, the reason that the church has burgeoned and swelled is hinging on the resurrection. If you are on the outskirts of a relationship with Christ and wondering where do you start, start with the resurrection. Dig around, poke around. Jesus invited Thomas to say, hey, Thomas, feel my hands and my, my, my feet, my side. Go ahead, ask the tough questions. And the resurrection is something that we gather together to commemorate, not because it was a martyr who gave his life and rumors of his resurrection continued, but because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. And as a result of his resurrection, we know that what he said is true. It validates all his, all his other teaching. Now, there's not a day that goes by in my journey that I don't at least for a brief moment, sometimes it's just a couple of seconds, acknowledge that, okay, Jesus, are you risen or not? And because he's risen, I can trust the rest 
of what he said. I can embrace the rest of what he did. And so theologically, the resurrection validates the veracity, the cogency, the historicity of, of Christianity. But practically, what difference does the resurrection make for you? For me, when the alarm rings on a Monday morning, what difference does the resurrection make? Yes, it validates Christianity, but what about when I'm about to move into my life on a Monday? Well, here's an image I'd like you to have in your mind about what difference the resurrection makes in my life on a Monday morning. You're saying it's about blowing out candles? Mm. Yes, this is a candle. That's part of my uh, acute ability to clarify that, which is obvious, so I'm exercising it right now. But is this candle right now fulfilling its purpose? I mean, it was a second ago when it was lit. Right now, it's not. This candle looks like a candle, but it is not doing what a candle meant to do because it's no longer ignited. I want you to keep that image in your mind and turn with me to the last chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke 24. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one as our gift. Go out in the back, pick one up. We'll also get your name and address. We're going to put you on a lot of religious mailing lists, so make sure you provide all that necessary information as well. Just kidding. We're here to help you in your journey. Anybody wants to honestly and authentically investigate the claims of Christ, we want to help in whatever way that we can. It's too important for you to ignore. Even this might be a kind of a rote tradition your family has done, maybe it's time. And maybe the hinge point will be saying, looking at the so what of the resurrection that we see in this passage. Now here's the here's situation. It's the Sunday afternoon after Jesus rose again. A couple of his followers are walking along a dusty dirt road towards a village called Emmaus. And they're like this. They're like this candle. The light's out. You see, so many of us, without our, our hearts being ignited, we're surviving, we're not thriving, we're existing, we're not living, we're spectating, we're not participating in this thing called a human journey. And they had been all aflame just a couple of days before, and now they were dejected, dreams shattered, hearts shuddered. You know what that's like. It's, it's part of living in a fallen world. It might have happened to you even this week. Maybe something, a vocational, a job situation. Maybe it's a relationship issue or something emotional or some, some news from a doctor or financial tragedy. Whatever it might be where all of a sudden we're dejected and we're close to giving up and we're just existing. That's where they were. Everything they had dreamed that was going to be true is now shattered. Verse 13, Luke 24, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. I love this. He's, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? In the Greek, it's... Hey guys, what's up? Not really. They stood still, their faces downcast. Two huge, huge phrases. 
All right, they're going to stop for a minute. They're reflecting. Their faces are downcast because their lives and their world has caved in. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He keeps, he keeps playing them. He says, well, what things? Yes. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. But the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped. That's the language of an extinguished heart. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that he had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as a woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, meaning first books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses, Jesus, beginning, beginning with Moses and after all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and at once, went, they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now go back, go back to verse 32. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? Were not it our hearts ignited? Were not our hearts lit while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Do you want to know the so what of the resurrection on a Monday morning? It's heartburn, but not the kind of heartburn that requires some medication. It's burning heart. It's a heart that's inflamed. It's a heart that's ignited. My heart is at the core of who I am. So is yours. The Bible talks a lot about the heart. In fact, about 783 times heart appears. Only, five, only 596 times is the word heaven referenced. Heart is everywhere because the heart is at our core. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, above all else, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of life. The heart is where I dance, where I dream. It's also where I despair. It's where I do life. 
My heart is not just my emotions. My heart is at the epicenter. Basically view it as a hub with three spokes, my mind, my emotions, and my will. When my heart is engaged with my mind, I'm thinking deeply. With my emotions, I'm feeling authentically. With my will, I'm acting intentionally. When we see an athlete who's playing with heart, we're not just saying they're emotional. They're playing with a real fire in their belly. And what that does, they're, they're very keen intellectually on the game plan. They know the game. They know their craft. They're very skilled with their hands and they're, uh, they're, they're passionate with their emotion and it all comes together. And where my heart is, that's where I am. And when we get beat around by a fallen world and lose heart, that's when we just start existing instead of living. And the Bible says the gospel is aimed at the heart. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, so believe with your heart. It's not just a matter of getting a religious mantra and reciting it and memorizing it. It's not just a matter of raising a hand at a church service. It's not a matter of a nice feel-good moment. It's me in, as a whole human being engaging with this good news of the gospel, believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. The gospel is all about me intellectually engaging with the veracity of what Jesus said. Me emotionally engaging with the relevance of what he says to my need. Me with my life changing course because of the resurrection. And it all centers in on a heart that's vulnerable and a heart that can be extinguished. Now I got a book here by L. Frank Baum. Anybody want to guess what the title is? The Wizard of Oz. You ever heard of that? He wrote this after he saw the movie. He thought he'd write, write a book. <laughs> Just kidding. The book came out before the movie. I know that's a shock to some of you. You get a lot in the book that you don't get in the movie. For example, the tin man who was looking for a heart explains to Dorothy and the scarecrow how he lost his heart. You don't know how he lost his heart? Interested in finding out? He was in love. I'm going to say this with a straight face because it's very serious to him. We just don't. He was in love with a munchkin girl, okay? He was a woodchopper. That was his craft. He was a woodsman. And they were going to get married. But she worked for an old woman who was very lazy and didn't want her to, this young girl to get married because then she wouldn't have anybody to do all of her work. And so the old woman schemed with the wicked witch to put a spell on the young man that would prevent the marriage from happening. And the wicked witch uh, cursed the young man's axe. And over time, as he was doing his business, uh, accidents would happen and appendages would be lost. And each time he would go to the tinsmith and have an arm or a leg made out of tin made happen with his head as well until finally he was all tin. But the, the deafening blow in his journey was when the axe laid on to his heart and destroyed it. He explained to Dorothy and the scarecrow, he said, when that happened, alas, I now had no heart so that I lost all my love for the munchkin girl and did not care, did not care. That's what happens when you lose heart. He said, I didn't care whether I married her or not. 
Now, you know the deal in the movie where he was all rusted and they had the oil can and got him going again, and that's accurate. He was out in that, he was in those woods for about a year before they came along. And he said, I had plenty of time to think. And he, he says, I was left to stand in the woods until you came to help me. It was a terrible thing to undergo, but during the year I stood there, I had time to think that the greatest loss I had known was the loss of my heart. It wasn't my arms, my legs, but it was a loss of my heart. When I was in Scotland years ago studying there, I went to a museum. There was a silver gilded drinking bowl called the Watson Maser. It had an inscription on it it's from the 16th century. And the inscription says this, money lost, little lost, honor lost, much lost. Heart lost, all lost. That's where these disciples were. And then the resurrection became very real to them. And as a result of the resurrection, an ignition took place. And they were able to engage. I've got three wicks here. So let's look at three wicks as we go through this passage. Three realities with which they were able to engage with an ignited heart. Here's the first one. Makes the resurrection very re relevant to me on a daily basis. It has to do with my story. I'm, I'm equipped because of the resurrection to engage with the redemption of my story. Uh, you go back through the passage and you see over and over, they're talking about being on the way and on the journey. Our lives are a journey. Where you are in your journey and where you are in your journey and where you are in yours and where I am in mine, we're at different places. We're at different pages in the story, but we're all part of a great story. But we get dejected, we get beat around, we get pressed down and the older we we get the shrapnel accumulates in our heart and we lose hope we lose heart and we don't understand what it all means are we just lucky blobs of protoplasm that came together by accident is just the only thing that's real what I can see and hear and smell and taste and touch Jesus is the risen Christ comes and says that's not all of reality and I can believe him because of the resurrection I can believe that my story has hope. My story has redemption. Sting, the artist, he wrote a brilliant song called The Book of My Life. The lyrics go like this. He said, it's the book of my days and it's the book of my life. And it's cut like a fruit on the blade of a knife. And it's all there to see as the sections reveal. There's some sorrow in every life. If it reads like a puzzle, a wandering maze, then I won't understand till the end of my days. I'm still forced to remember, remember the words of my life. There's a chapter on fathers and a chapter on sons. There are pages of conflicts that nobody won. And the battles you lost in your bitter defeat, there's a page where we fail to meet. Though the pages are numbered, I can't see where they lead. For the end is a mystery no one can read in the book of my life. Another page is going to turn tonight when you, your head hits the pillow. Mine too. Tomorrow morning, a new page. What will happen? What's the purpose? 
And the, the older we get and the more the shrapnel accumulates, the more we lose heart. As Henry David Thoreau famously said, all the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. We lose heart over time. And then along comes the resurrection in which Jesus says, I know it's difficult. John 16, 33. He says, I want to tell you something's going to give you peace. In this world, you will have trouble. You will. But he says, I want you to take heart. And he says a reason. He says not, hey, let me just give you a little religious formula. He says, let me tell you why to take heart, because I have overcome the world. At the epicenter of that was his resurrection from the dead. If he wasn't risen from the dead, no reason to believe that. But because he is, I can trust that he has overcome and he is doing what he said he would do in the process of renewing all things, restoring creation. In this mysterious plan between his first coming and the second coming, there is purpose going on and there will be no pages of my story left on the editing room floor of my life. He says he's able to redeem it. He's able to draw me in to the original purpose that I was made for, not just to look like a human being, but to function like one to the glory of God. Jesus didn't come to make us religious. He came to restore us to a significance of our humanity being lived to the glory of God. That's why he came. That's what the resurrection can do when my alarm rings on a morning. But there's a second wick here, and it's not just in engaging with my story, it involves engaging with the scriptures. It's not just looking at the redemption of my story and having a realistic hope that my story is going to be redeemed. Wherever it is, whatever failures have happened, that's realistic to hope that because of the resurrection. But there's also a relevance to the scriptures. A lot of people think, okay, this is one of many religious books. Jesus said it's more than that. This is the word of God. He endorsed it. So if he hadn't risen from the dead, I wouldn't need to pay attention to it. But because he did, I need to pay attention to this. Go back to the text for a minute. In verse 27, it says, in the beginning, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, scriptures, what he's referring to there is what the Jews would have referred to as the Tanakh, the um, these first five books of the Old Testament and the Old Testament itself, the, Old, the Moses and the prophets, and Jesus walked to them through and saying, there is something going on that you've missed. Understand this. All of the Bible is one story. It's a number of small sub-stories, but it's all about the great story. And Jesus explained that to them. The reason we've offered you a Bible is not to give you something to go on your coffee table. But something to begin to read, say, where do I start? Start with the Gospel of John. Saying, can this book speak to me? Not to improve my religiosity, but to fulfill my humanity, to give me a direction. Dante Alighieri was an Italian poet in the 14th century and wrote a classic that some of you had to read when you were in school called Commedia Divina, Divine Comedy. Dante's Inferno. He's writing it about himself, the first line of that treatise. He describes himself as a 40-year-old man, and he says this, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Jesus says, this book can be your light. 
Why should I believe him? Because he's risen. He says, this book is about me and my life is your light, John chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 119, verse 32, he says, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. My heart gets set free by the word of God. And Jesus walked them through the veracity, the trustworthiness of the Bible. It talks about from Moses to the prophets, all that was prophesied about him. In the Old Testament, there are about 300 prophecies about Jesus. I've mentioned this before. Uh, Peter Stoner from Westmont College years ago took the top 48 of those prophecies about Jesus' first coming and calculated. He had some graduate classes help him do the calculations. What would the odds be of all 48 of these prophecies written hundreds of years before Christ came about where he would be born, where he would die, how he would die, the circumstances of his birth, etc. What are the odds of all 48 of those prophecies being fulfilled in one man? And he, they came up, calculated it, submitted it to the American Scientific Affiliation, and they said that these numbers are accurate, one in 10 to the 157th power are the odds of 48 of those 300 prophecies being fulfilled in the same person. That's one in 13 trillions together. So in other words, what are the chances of all 48 of just those, just those 48 prophecies being fulfilled in one man? One in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's cause for pause to say, maybe this isn't just another religious book. Maybe it's what Hebrews describes in chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And no wonder, Psalm 119, verse 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Emile Callier was one, a brilliant philosopher in the 20th century. He was an atheist, prevented Bibles from being in his home. He started reading the Bible in his 20s. His wife brought one home against his wishes, but then he started reading it. And he wrote later, he said, finally I had found a book that would understand me. The scriptures all of a sudden take on a new significance. It's not just a religious duty. It's a way for me to navigate this thing called a fallen world. But there's a third wick. It's not just having to do with my story in the scriptures but it has to do with me engaging with a relationship with the Savior. Not just the redemption of my story, that ignites my heart. Not just with the relevance of Scripture, that will ignite my heart. There's something powerful about the Word of God, but there's also, it ends up, most importantly, the resurrection leads me to engage with a relationship with the Savior. It's not a passive thing, it's active. I begin to walk and grow in a relationship with him just like anyone else. Go back to the text. Look at verse 30, 30, 30 in chapter 24, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, I mean, I've, I've read this verse over and over. Tried to picture myself there. They hadn't been recognizing him all day. 
He'd been expositing, explaining scripture, and then it says this. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. What was it? I believe the language there is leading us to understand that they made a connection between what they had experienced just three nights before when Jesus gathered in the upstairs room before he gave his life and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the wine and he poured it and says, this is my blood poured out for you. And all of a sudden it hit. On Sunday they realized he, on Thursday night, he was talking about the crucifixion being something intentional. Here they had been thinking it had devastated his plans and now they realize it fulfilled it and it fulfilled it because now they could have relationship with him. All that he had taught began to fall into place. That he had come not for himself. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He had come denied not as a religious martyr but as a substitute. For you and me dying on the cross not for his sins but for ours to pay an infinite penalty it would otherwise take us eternity to pay. And if we would receive his payment on our behalf on the cross and receive him as savior, we're restored into a right relationship with God and then all of a sudden we're burning on a heart level with our humanity. Understanding our stories are significant. Understanding that the scriptures can lead us. Understanding that the Savior wants an intimate relationship. He is not interested in your religiosity, nor mine. He's interested in intimacy. As I work, as I play, as I dance, as I grieve, as I create, as I rest. He says, relate with me, I love you. You think, really? He demonstrated his love on the cross and validated that love by his resurrection. We can trust it. And when those doubts come, we go back to the resurrection. When I asked my wife, Arlene, to marry me, it was like two or three years ago, maybe longer. She was a student at Wheaton College. I'd graduated, so I picked her up and took her to the mall. I don't know how to show a girl a good time, I'll tell you. <laughs> but she did not know that I had already been to the mall that day with a dozen roses. And I went to 12 different stores, found a clerk in each of those stores that knew it was going to still be working that night, gave that clerk a rose and a card with Arlene's name on it. And I said, when I walk back in, I don't blend into a crowd very easily, so you'll recognize me. And I walk in, the woman that I'll be with, if you'll walk up to her and say, congratulations, Arlene. First couple of times, it was, it was quite a trip because totally unexpected. And then it became like an Easter egg hunt. Which store are we going to go in where they'll have a rose? So after 12 roses, she's got a, 12 roses in her arms. We're walking around. People are following us uh, in, in the mall. We get to a restaurant after that. And the waiter comes up with another gift and says, congratulations, Arlene. And they, that, that gift had a card with it, gave her hints about where we were going next, which was the boathouse at Lake Ellen in Glen Ellen, Illinois, that I had talked the park district into giving me the keys to, a college student, trust me, got 
guys, uh, you can trust a college student with the keys to the boathouse in this recreation center. But some reason they did it. I had everything laid out there, asked her to marry me, popped the question, she said yes, and then took her back to her house. It was well after midnight. I knew I was going to get there after midnight. And so I dropped a card on the way out the door after Arlene had left when I picked her up. She walked out and I was behind her and I threw the card back so that they would be sure and see it, explained to them what was going to happen. And I said, would you put this card on her pillow so that she'll see it when we get back well after midnight. So we actually looked at it this week. It says, Dear Arlene, uh, so grateful that you're my wife-to-be. I can't wait. I love you, Matt. There's one other item that I put on the card. I knew it was going to be after midnight, so I simply dated it for the next day. And so in the top right-hand corner of that card is April 1st. So Arlene got in all sleepy and thinking we were all engaged, and then the first thing she looks at in a note from me is April 1st. And then she said, no, I know this is real. So it might be April Fool's Day, but know that no April Fool's Day can challenge the historic rescue of Jesus Christ of this planet that is the epicenter of which is in his resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are a savior that we need. Now we're at various points on the map of acknowledging our need for you as savior. But I ask that you would give us the courage to humble ourselves right now in the midst of our journeys with hearts that might be lost and numb. Maybe we've encountered tragedy or we've encountered betrayal or we've encountered a purposelessness. Give us the courage to come to you as Savior to relate with you. Give us the courage to begin submitting to your word and to see its relevance for our journeys. And, and, and give us the hope of having stories that are not meaningless but can be redeemed into the great scheme of what you're up to in this cosmos. Now, right now, before we leave here, give us the courage to be still in your presence and own up to the fact that we actually need you as Savior and can trust that you're that Savior because you are risen from the dead.